I add my welcome to you as uh, Jordan welcomed you and hope and pray that you'll be able to stay later for a, uh, a cup of tea or coffee or whatever else may be going, but mainly fellowship can be had one with another. Just to remind you that our pastor gets back tomorrow and uh, I praise God that, uh, that they're heading home and that they weren't waylaid in, in uh, New Zealand and so it's, it's great that they're heading home to, to be with us once again. Thank you, uh, Jordan, for leading us. I wondered if you'd picked up the theme that was going through Jordan's thoughts. What, what, what did you hear? Sorry? Love. Love indeed. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. You may recall that I've been going through the attributes of God and uh, I think this might be the last one. We've been through God's sovereignty, his omnipotence, his, his all-powerfulness, his omnipresence, how he's with us at all times, his omniscience, he knows everything. His transcendence, the fact that he is unique, he is above us, his ways are higher than our ways, but in the same time he is imminent, he is with us at all times. He is immutable, he never ever changes same yesterday, today and tomorrow. He is true. It doesn't mean that God just tells the truth. He is truth. He is faithful to all of us. His holiness, we looked at his holiness. We looked last time, a couple of weeks ago, at his wrath. You wouldn't have picked up any theme through our service there. I forget who was leading, but there's not many songs on wrath. It's easy to pick songs on love and we hear them and we sang them all, but God's wrath, there's not many people have written hymns. John, maybe you can write a hymn on God's wrath. And, <laughs> and that's why it's a joy to have uh, God's love right at the end. But why did I start this series? Well, right from the beginning, my whole idea was to understand and know God. See, as Christians, we're prone to try and create God in our image. We try and put onto God what we understand and what we believe as very finite human beings. We try and explain God and we try and put him in little boxes all over the place. We want him in little packages so that we can understand all the time. But God's ways are higher than our ways and we don't always understand. And so we create a God that fits in what we want. And so I've been able to go through these attributes and there are many more. But there's nothing more important to me. There's nothing more valuable, nothing more significant than knowing and understanding God. Understanding and knowing God, and I mean knowing in a true sense, is the strength of our lives. That's where the power of our love, of his love, that's the strength that we have. Understanding and knowing God gives us the direction in our Christian lives. It gives us a focus of who he is. It's important that we understand and know God. And we can know God. God has revealed himself in the scriptures. And that's why we have gone through these attributes. I started off right at the beginning with 
the reason that we can know God is from Jeremiah 9.23. It says, Thus says the Lord. I love it when a scripture starts. Thus saith the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. And let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord. That's our boast. It's not in what we have or we, what we think we have. Our boasting should be in the knowledge or that we understand and know God. And that's why we've been looking at these attributes to understand and know God just that little bit better so that we don't put him in a a box and that we can lead our lives in the understanding of who God really is. And so we're looking at love today and the passage that probably contains the greatest single statement of God's love is found in 1 John chapter 4. You might like to turn there with me. We're going to look at 1 John and then we're going to turn to Romans but let's look at 1 John chapter 4 verses 7 and 8. My kids learnt this as a song. I've never forgotten this song. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God. 1 John 4, starting at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. There's the the statement. God is love. It doesn't say God is grace or God is mercy, although we know God is all gracious and all merciful, we know that, but it says God is love. And right at the beginning, we need to understand that God didn't create an emotional feeling or an expression at the time when man was created. Love didn't begin when God created the universe. Love was already there. There is love within the triune God, always has been. Where God was, there was love. Where God is, there is love. Where God will be, will be full of love. So when we join him in eternal glory, when we join him in heaven, our eternal home, that there will be love. For God is love. Let's just pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at one of your attributes, but one that touches us so much, and that is love. We thank you that we can read a scripture that states plainly that you are love. And I thank you for that, Lord. And as we go through in this vast subject to try and discover the the deep, deep love of God, Father, help us by your Spirit to just grasp a, a portion of it, to be excited and encouraged because of the love that is upon us. We thank you for this time and ask that you would bless this word and may your spirit work in our lives. 
We ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you randomly stopped people in the street and you asked them to describe God, I would, without fear of contradiction, believe that most people would say that God loves, that God is love. People who never go to church, who never read their Bibles, they usually know that God is associated with love. Unbelievers know that God is love. Atheists know it. Other religions know that God is love. They not, they not fully understand it, they might not fully believe it, but they've heard it so many times that when they think of God, they think of love. I was listening to a, a talk, I listened to Talkback Radio as I'm delivering my parcels and one man was talking about homosexuality and uh, how people are against it. And he, he's not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination and he said, but I'm not going to focus on what people think, I'm going to focus on the fact that God is love and so he loves this, this homosexuality because God is love. And that's what got me thinking. What most people think about God's love is quite simply not true at all. And so to start with, in talking about God's love, I want to bring two wrong ideas of God's love to you before I touch on two other ideas of what God's love is. I want to share with you two Mis, 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 uh, misconceptions like that man had. And the first one is they say God is love, therefore love is God. The first part is certainly true. We read that in 1 John 4 8. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Love is at the core of God's being. We're going to look at that a bit later. Love is what causes him to reach out to guilty sinners. But the second part love is God, is manifestly untrue. You see, not all love is from God and that's what they think. People down through the ages have used this perversion of God's character as an excuse for all kinds of sin. Adultery, for instance, other forms of immoral behaviour are excused by the phrase that says, but I love them. The statement implies that love makes everything okay because love is God. The argument seems to be that if God is love, then every feeling of love I have is from God and by implication approved by God. And people have used love to justify gluttony and materialism or immoral behaviour. God and love are not synonyms. To say that love is God is at best misleading and at worst a brand of New Age pantheism. Love is not, is, is, love is God is wrong. People say, I, but I love this and God has given it to me, he has given me love. God is love, therefore I love this, therefore it's okay by God. The second misconception I bring to you this morning which I hear is the notion that God's love somehow cancels out his holiness and his justice and therefore because God is love everyone's going to go to heaven and no one is going to go to hell because how could a loving God send someone to hell? 
But I want to tell you that God's love does not negate his holiness. It does not negate his righteousness. It does not negate his wrath. It does not negate what that man was talking about. That just because God is love, that means he loves everything. Many people seem to have the idea that when they reach the gates of heaven, that God will smile and say, oh, you don't deserve to come in, but I'll oh, come in anyway because I love you so much. And people have this idea that because God is love, he'll let me into heaven. But whatever else we may say, that this much is certain, and that is God's love is not a benevolent softness. Why do I say that? Because sin cannot be overlooked. He will never contradict his own nature. God, that's why I have left love to the end. Because now we have a, a good handle on God's nature, God's attributes, particularly his wrath and his holiness. And behind this wrong idea is the perverted view that says, if you love me, you'll accept anything I do. Maybe people even have said that to you. If you love me, you'll accept me. Now that might be all right, but it's, it's wrong. Because love makes judgment calls. Love cares about right and wrong. And that's why parents discipline their children. That's why God disciplines his children. As we've seen all the way through our studies, God is not just loving, he is holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin. He is just. In fact, God's love is built on his holiness and could not exist apart from his holiness. God will judge sin. In fact, his holiness says he must judge sin. What's the judgment for sin? Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. And so God will either judge our sin through the substitute he's provided in our Lord Jesus Christ, which we have uh, celebrated this morning, in which case, as has been said, the wages of death have already been paid by our Lord. And he will judge us on that if we have accepted him as our Lord and Saviour. Christ has paid the wages. But if you're here this morning and you've never accepted the work of Christ on the cross, then he will judge you individually at a place that is called the Great White Throne Judgment in Revelation. He will open the, the books and if your name is not there and, and it won't be there if you've never accepted Christ as Saviour, then he will judge you and you will go to a place that the Scripture calls the Lake of Fire the second death. I'm not making this up. This is in the scriptures. I'm here to, to warn you to not think that God's love will overlook the great white throne judgment. God will judge because the wages of sin is death. You see, God is under no obligation to extend, extend his love or his mercy or his grace to those who have spurned his love through the cross. He's under no obligation to do that. Two misconceptions that I wanted to start with. The idea that God's love will 
just get rid of all his other attributes. So let's go into the, the fact of what is God's love. What can we say about God's love? Some of the hymnists find it a little bit difficult. Oh, the deep, deep love. You know, they, they don't know any other way of saying it and they, they repeat it. How vast the Father's love for us. The first thing I've learned about God's love as I've studied over the last couple of weeks is that I simply cannot describe a love that's so far beyond my words and so far beyond my understanding. I simply can't find the words to convey his love. And the fact is sometimes I think our minds just can't conceive of the love that God has for us. One hymn writer named Frederick Lehman, he wrote a hymn called The Love of God. And this is the, the closest that I have found a hymn writer to be able to write in my eyes to try and explain the love of God. I'm going to read it to you. At the end of the sermon we're going to see a, a video of this hymn with a lovely people singing it and the words up on the screen. But now I'm just going to read it to you to show how hard it is to even conceive the love of God. He says, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair, bowed down with care, gave, God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. The second verse says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the, the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless, how strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. You know, I pondered at length at how to bring the love of God to you. How, to, how do you share in 40 minutes the love that is so vast that if the ink, the ocean was ink and the, the sky was the parchment and we could write it, we couldn't even fill the, the sky with, with his love. How do I bring it in 30 minutes? And so the only way I could think about doing it is coming up with truth, two truths about God's love that I want to share with you. By no means an exhausting exhaustive treatment of God's love as the hymn says the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell and I'm not going to go be able to go against that hymn so I'm going to share with you the fa two facts one is uh, negative and one is positive the first one is God's love is undeserved and the second is God's love is sacrificial now I wanted to br bring us the the negative side of it, God's love is undeserved because it focuses in on us. You know, I think sometimes deep inside we human beings thinks, think there's an idea or have an idea that we somehow deserve God's love. For whatever reason, 
I think there's a feeling amongst people that mostly says, oh, we're very lovable, so God should love us because we're so lovable. But perhaps the most fitting passage in the New Testament of God's love and us is found in Romans 5. So you might like to turn there with me to Romans 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, sorry, Romans chapter 5 and just going to read verses 6 to 8. It really brings into, into thought God's love and us. Romans 5 verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, in this passage, Paul is focusing on the death of Christ as the supreme manifestation of God's love. I'm going to look at that as the second point. We'll talk about that next. But first of all, Paul focuses in on us. Verse 6, for instance, describes us in two ways. It describes us as without strength. Some of your versions will have powerless and ungodly. Now to be powerless means we can't and couldn't change our basic nature because we're powerless to do so. Ungodly means we have no desire to change our basic nature anyway. So we were powerless and ungodly. And then verse 8 adds that we are sinners. Just read that again for you. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners. So in two verses, we've found out that we're desperately in need of change because we're sinners, but we're powerless to change ourselves and we didn't want to change ourselves anyway because we're ungodly. See, no more hopeless a situation could ever be imagined. We're powerless, we're ungodly, we're sinners. And it's not a very pretty list. But those three words describe the spiritual state of every person in the world, every person that was born, apart, of course, from Jesus Christ. And this is God's judgment on the entire human race. No one, not one person is excluded. All men, all women, by nature, by their birth, are powerless, ungodly and the enemies of God. That's how we came into this world. And may I say as lovingly as I can, if you sit here this morning and you're not accepting that truth, I want to lovingly say it doesn't matter whether you accept this truth or not because these things are true without regard to your personal opinion. Not because I say so but because the scriptures say so. You might be saying, but I'm not ungodly, I'm not God's enemy. You might even say, I know lots of people who sin more than I do. God's word overrules your objections. This, what I've just read out of the scripture, is the truth about us as we stand on our own before God. 
powerless, ungodly sinners. This leaves us with no hope in ourselves. In fact, our condition is hopeless apart from Jesus Christ. And so I want to draw one conclusion, one major conclusion from the passages that I just read and that is God's love is not dependent on anything in us because there's nothing in us worth loving. I want you to understand that. God's love is not dependent on anything in us because there's nothing in us worth loving. In other words, there's nothing in any of us that forces God to love us. We are powerless, ungodly and sinners. Was God's love shown to us before, because we first loved him? For those of you who know your scriptures, you know that, that the answer to that is a, a very loud no. Of course not. May Ganoita, may it never be. In fact, we're God's enemies. There is then no reason for God to love us. No reason except from the fact that God loves you and he loves me because God is love. He can't help loving us even when we're his enemies. His love is both greater than our sin and in spite of our sin. God shouldn't love us, but he does. And to me, this is the wonder of the ages. This is how the hymn writers are trying to explain it by vast oceans of, uh, of words. It's the wonder of the ages that God would love his sworn enemies. God loves us in spite of our unloveliness. And the byproduct of this is the fact that God, that means that God's love is sure and certain because it doesn't depend on anything we say or do. God demonstrated his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's his demonstration of his love. That while we were powerless and ungodly and sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is undeserved. That's the negative side. That's the side where you don't want it to be left. But it needs to be shown because it brings out so much of God's love in the second point and that is that God's love is sacrificial because now we can turn to the incredible solution to our problem, the impossible problem of being powerless and ungodly and sinners. You see, verses 7 and 8 of Romans revealed, reveals that the supernatural nature of God's love. His solution to our problem is so unusual that it goes beyond our human reasoning. We would never think this up on our own. Only God could conceive this, this solution. <coughs> Look at verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die... Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. Now here's a good question for you to discuss, discuss over lunch today. How many people are you willing to die for? Now I realise you'll never really know until the moment comes 
And I'm sure you're praying that you'll never be put in that agonising position. But what if you were? What would be the answer to that? How many people would you die for? I would say that the list may be quite small. The scripture says, yet perhaps for a good man someone might die. And I'm sure if you're you're married and you're thinking of your wife and children, there's a good chance that you would take the bullet for them. But to be honest, how many people would you be willing to die for? We've all read heroic heroic stories about someone gave his life. I want to imagine a situation during the war, during a war. It's a late night and the sergeant is talking to his men They're out in the jungle, they're deep in enemy territory, it's cold and they're all huddling around a fire. Suddenly a grenade comes in from the darkness. It lands at the sergeant's feet and without even thinking he throws himself on the grenade and takes the full force of the blast with his body. His death saves his men. He gave his life for his friends. (coughs) <coughs> but listen carefully. Romans 5.8 is telling us that God's love is not like that. The illustration I just shared shows friends dying for friends. We've talked about loved ones dying for loved ones. So I would take, um, without a, probably even thinking about it, take the place of my wife or my children for my life. And as great as that is, God's love is much greater. You see, God went far beyond what we would do. Look at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We read this verse and we like to emphasise Christ died for us and that's what we focus on. But the emphasis is clearly on the first phrase, while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love toward us. While we were still God's enemies, God demonstrated his love. You see, the wonder of the cross that we've shared is not that Christ should die for us. That would be wonderful enough. The wonder of the cross is that Christ died for us while we were still sinners, while we were still ungodly, still powerless and still enemies of God. You see, Christ didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. He died for those who crucified him. He died for those who who cheered as the nails were driven into his hand. He died for those who hated him and, and those who rejected him. Going back to that war illustration, this time though the, the sergeant has been captured by, his, by the enemies. Because he's a sergeant, he's beaten unmercifully. He's beaten to with an inch of his life. His captors torment him day and night. They're trying to break his will to get some information. Fortunately, there's a rescue team coming along and as the forces move in, his captors surround him. But suddenly a grenade comes in, into the middle of him. But instead of the sergeant running away, he now still jumps on the, on the grenade. He takes the full force of the blast but this time dying for his enemies. I don't think you would see that in a movie. He died for those who savagely beat him. 
You might say, who would ever do a thing like that? Well, the chances are we'd come up with no one except Jesus Christ. He did something like that when he died for us while we were still sinners 2,000 years ago. God demonstrated his love for us. He didn't die for those who loved him. He died for those who hated him. The death of Jesus Christ is the proof of God's sacrificial love. And that's why the hymn writers really do struggle to, to, to write hymns about God's love using all the thoughts and ideas that they can because it's so vast. You know, sometimes in this crazy mixed up world people say, where's the love of God? Show me the love of God. I can't see it. There's so much killing, so much heartache, so much tragedy. Look at all the pain in the world. Look at all the anger. Where is the love of God? And as Christians, all we can simply say is, look at the cross. Gaze upon the bleeding form of the Son of God, one hymnist writes. There you will see the love of God. Let no one ever doubt that God loves you. God's love is undeserved. God's love is sacrificial. But I don't want to leave it there because I have two questions that I want to bring to you to try and bed it down in our hearts. And the first, if, if, if God loves us in this way, if God, God's love is undeserved and it's, un, it's sacrificial, why shouldn't we love him in return? Why don't we love him in return? Like every other attribute of God that we've studied, God's love should drive us to our knees in worship. It's just not possible. In fact, it's inconceivable to know God's love and still sit there with smugness and a feeling of self-righteousness. It's inconceivable that we are able to do that. If you understand how great the love of the Father is to us, you'll run to him with open arms. You will fall onto your knees and worship him. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make this wretch his treasure. One writer puts it. J.I. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God. I want to read a passage from his book. As always, I like to read passages because I can't put it any better. He writes, Is it true that God is love to me as a Christian? So that's his question to you. Is it true that God is love to you as a Christian? And does the love of God mean all that has been said? Now obviously he wrote a whole book on it, but what I've said, if so, certain questions will arise. And these are the questions. If you love God and you know that God is love, he writes, why do I ever grumble and show discontent and resentment at the circumstances in which God has placed me? If I know God is love, why do I grumble? If I know God is love, why am I ever distrustful or fearful or depressed? If I know God is love, why do I ever allow myself to grow cool, formal and half-hearted in the service of the God who loves me so much? If God 
is love. Why do I ever allow my loyalties to be divided so that God has not all of my own heart? Packer is simply asking the question, if God loves me so much, why do I do those things? Why am I distrustful and fearful? Why am I cool or half-hearted? Why am I discontent in my circumstances? If God loves me so much, why am I those things? And I think the answer can only come from the fact is because we do not understand the love of God enough. And so the person who begins to even grasp or understand the extent of God's love should have a new outlook to everything because God is love and he loves me. He demonstrated that love by sending his son. Why then am I, am I half-hearted in my service to him? So that's the first question I want to leave you with that only you can and God can answer. If God loves you so much in the way he's demonstrated it, shouldn't you love him in return? The second question I have which comes from 1 John which we'll open up to again. If God loves us this way and so much, shouldn't we love each other in the same way? Because this is John's conclusion to that first letter that we read. So open up again to 1 John chapter 4. And I just want to bring out some points of John's argument. It's quite straightforward. It doesn't need a lot of explanation. And the first point I want to bring from verse 7 is loving others is evidence that we are God's children. Look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And so do others know that you're born of God? Or they will by the love that you show others. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So we should love each other because that's a part of knowing God. Or maybe your verse 8, which would be unfortunate, but verse 8 talks about the fact that not loving others means we don't know God. I hope you're not in that position, but verse 8 says, He who does not love does not know God for God is love. I want to explain this a little bit. You see, the word love in this passage is not sexual, it's not social love, it's supernatural love. It's agape kind of love. It's the love which the Holy Spirit puts into our hearts. It's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, etc. We have love right up the front. Only the Holy Spirit can make this love, this agape love real to you real for you and so consequently only the Holy Spirit can enable us to extend this to others and so what John is saying he's saying if there's no agape love if there's no love then there's no Holy Spirit you're not a Christian and you do not know God that's what that verse is saying he who does not love he who does not have the agape love does not know God for God is love. So the first one says that our love shows that we are of God. The second verse says if, you're not, if there is no love, 
then you're not of God. Thirdly, we should love because we know what it's like to be loved. Verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God has loved you so much to demonstrate his love in sending his son and to demonstrate his love in loving you even though you're undeserved, even though it's undeserved, if that's the kind of love from God, then surely we ought to love one another. It goes without saying. We know what it's like to be loved, so we should love others. The fourth point out of five, we should love each other because when we do, we make it possible for God to live in us more fully. That's what verse 12 says. No one has seen God at any time but if we love one another, God abides in us. We are the visible manifestation of God on this earth besides creation and the sun and the moon. We are the visible manifestation of God. And if we love one another, God abides in us. Meno, he lives in us, he remains in us, he stays in us, he resides in us. Those words all think it the same as abide. No one has seen God, but if we love one another, God is abiding in you and people will see that because that's the fifth point. We should love because by loving others, God's love is made complete in us. Again, verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. You see, it's quite easy to say, I love God. It just rolls off the tongue. Maybe it rolls off your tongue and just say, I love God. But the reality from these verses is you say you really love God by not talking about it, but by loving others the same way that God has loved you. <coughs> we show our love to our brothers and sisters in the Lord and your love will be flowing out to unbelievers. That's what makes us so different than, a, than just a, a, a club. We have love for one another. And so when a non-Christian walks into this place, they can see we're different. We have this love that is just burning for each other. And that's the reality. If we love one another, God abides in us, he remains in us, and his love is being perfected in you. God has commanded us to love. But the great thing about love is that it comes from God and it leads back to God. And those who do not love each other do, know, do not know the love of God. I'm not sure, probably the only time that I've ever preached and not sure whether I've even covered enough I, I just don't know it's too vast we've only scratched the surface of, of God's love it's, we could spend and should spend the rest of our lives studying not just God's love but all his attributes and we would still not exhaust the richness of his blessing toward each one of us in fact we could spend the rest of our days pondering his love and never ever exhaust it. And so to try and do it in 30 or 40 minutes 
is just inadequate. The most majestic words, if I had them, could still only capture a small part of what it means to be loved by God. I'm going to finish, we're going to finish with what I said with that, that uh, recording of that song. It was the only way I could really think about fin- finishing it. Sometimes we could sing this. We actually, this church knows this, this hymn. But sometimes when we're singing we don't fully appreciate the words. We're concentrating on the tune or should I go up here or down here or should I put a... We just sometimes don't think enough on the words. So the words are going to be up on the screen. I just want you to focus in on it. And don't let this be the last time you think about God's love. There might be other things you can come to me and say, well, this is God's love in my life or this is, we sh- I could have touched on this or I could have touched on that. Maybe I could do a second sermon next time. Part two of God's love. But... Um, We're ready up the back there.